I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our very wet St. Louis Public Radio studio is... Fellow reporter Joe Manis. And continuing in the mid-Missouri tradition of political figures making a long trek to get here, we have in the studio... Representative Stephen Weber from Columbia. We're honored that you made the trip to talk with us today. Thank you so much for, for being here. the place where every mid-Missouri politician has to come down <laughs> to get some St. Louis... Uh, <laughs> Radio. Yes, St. Louis exposure. Right. Yes, we're all about yeah exposing for all the um, legislators properly, of course. Because of course, you know, votes for your Senate race are going to come from you know the inner city of St. Louis. That's obviously. that's yeah, that's that's one of the core constituencies yeah, you have to absolutely. be sure to hit. Right now, we always ask our, our first time guests just where where their districts are. Um, you've been in the House for about seven years now. Tell me about your your district. Yes, and, and you're a Democrat. I'm a Democrat. I'm 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 term limited out of the Missouri House. I'm in my fourth and final term. Um, my, my district is uh, all in, within the city of Columbia. Um, I've started out a few years ago having the northern part of Columbia, and then they sort of flipped my district. Now I have the southern part of Columbia. So How I've much heard, of the university do you have? Um, I have uh, the, the part where the uh, SEC East champion uh, Missouri football Tigers play. <laughs> um, I have that. And I've got the MU uh, system administration buildings. Yeah. And that's about it. The not, rest of it is Not actually... to get too much in the weeds, but <laughs> right. um, former Representative Kelly's district and former Representative uh, Mary Still, uh, Judy Baker, and now Kip Kendrick, they right. have typically had the university proper. Correct. And, and those districts are like 90% Democratic, and the Democratic primary is the election. But um, before we kind of get into how you got into Missouri politics, just for people who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, Joe's going to ask where you went to high school. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just cutting her off at the pass because <laughs> I just like doing that's that. That's what he likes to do. I've got it, I've got it on my keychain. I'm a, I'm a Hickman QP. Yes. And uh, I don't know if everybody knows what a QP is. Um, QP dolls are like, so they were sort of like it's Troll? from Southwest Missouri. The artist who originated them is this long gone, but she's this artist from Southwest Missouri. Okay. Yeah, they were very popular in the early 1900s. Yes. Um, so I went to Hickman High School in Columbia, home of the QBs, the only QBs in the country. They are. Um, we're, we're proud of that fact. I think it's actually one of the largest high schools in the entire state, if not the largest high school. Is that correct? I, I believe, yeah. For a time, I've, I believe it was one of the How largest. How many are in it? I think my graduating class was about, I think, about 700. Yeah. Um, and they've just reconfigured. I mean, Columbia just added a third, or I guess a fourth, um, public high school um, with, with opening battle. Uh, so that changed things. And they moved the ninth graders in, so it's a little bit different now. Yeah. But it's a large high school. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Columbia. All, I mean, from, from, I, went to, I, I would say I went to preschool at the University of Missouri because I went to the Child Development Lab. Um, so I went to preschool on campus. So I literally grew up on the campus of the University of Missouri. Because yeah. both of your parents were academics. Um, your your mother, I think, is the head of the MBA program right. at, at Mizzou. She, she's yeah. the director of the MBA program, and she, she taught for a while when I was growing up in the law school. And your father is, a, I guess, a now retired political science professor. So you 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 have MU uh, academics <laughs> right. in your right. blood, so to speak. Right. Um, and then uh, actually, uh, after graduating from high school, I came uh, not too far away from where we are right now. I went to St. Louis University um, for my undergrad and, and studied economics there. 
And uh, I was telling you, I think I, I graduated from SLU in six semesters spread out over five years um, because after my, my, my freshman year was the only year I went continuously. And then after that, I was leaving for the Marine Corps Reserve. I, was, I joined the Marine Corps Reserve the summer after my freshman year. What year was that? So I joined in the summer of 2002. Okay. Okay. And so did you – were you um, – Stationed overseas? Yes. So overseas at all? Yes. So uh, my sophomore year, uh, I left half the year to go to boot camp in the infantry okay. school. I came back um, for the, the fall of what been my junior year. And then that Christmas, um, I guess actually January 1st was my first day. January 1st, 2004, I was activated and my battalion got sent to Iraq. Yeah, this is a question I've never mm-hmm. asked you before, but you know, this was a time, obviously, when joining the military was a choice. Nobody mm-hmm. was compulsive. You know, no one was drafted into. And Although you, people were really concerned about terrorism at the time, right. because this, this is within a couple of years after. But the I'm just, I'm start. just wondering right. what prompted you to join, because you're kind of in a social position where I'm sure you know both of your parents were university professors. I wouldn't classify that as as being the the typical person that joins the military, rightly or wrongly. What kind of prompted you to join? Right, uh, I think it's it's a lot of different things, so it's hard to narrow it down to one. Um, I I joined knowing full well that we we were. Going to probably invade Iraq. That had sort of that drumbeat had already started. I was yeah. against it from the very beginning. I yeah, because that's what I figured. The timing yeah. would be close to the first Iraq invasion. Right. I was. I think in. I was in in boot camp when the, the actual invasion started. Um, I was against it from the beginning. I thought it was just a mind-blowingly bad idea. Um, but I have a. I guess I do have a very strong sense of um, um, citizenship. Um, and the idea that we are all in this together and that we make decisions as a country. And that was the decision we made. That was a choice that this country made to invade Iraq um, that uh, I should do my part in it. Um, and I also thought that I, I could, and I think it, as the story plays out, I think I could contribute some. I think I did a good job. I went back a second time. I was a squad leader, and I think that uh, um, I was able to help some other Marines um, get through the process and get through the get through the war, which I think is incredibly valuable. I think I could can come back and articulate um, what I saw and what I did. Um, so it was really a combination of a lot of different things. Now, now your time in Iraq has been written about extensively in the local Columbia media, mm-hmm. and I think that there have been times when, for example, war is glorified in popular culture that you've actually spoken with experience against it. Because we're not not to get into too much detail, but you saw some really heavy-duty fighting, this was a situation that I'm sure is going to be with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, what, what did this kind of experience bring for public service for you? And what, it kind of, what, did, what does it bring to you at this point in time for you today? So my, my first tour was at Abu Ghraib, the prison. Um, I was there in 2004, and uh, I was not not dealing with the prisoners. I was, just, I was there. But, a company was but stationed you there. were there during the period When that it all came it, out. Yeah, well, yeah. yes. Yeah, and, um, and then my second tour was in Fallujah in 2006 and seven, And that was, um, that was, that was an intense place to be. And, there, and I was in the infantry. Um, our job was just to, we did, you know, ambushes and raids um, and all sorts of patrols. And a lot of times our job is just to walk down the street and see who shoots at us. I mean. Now, being in the reserves, as opposed to being at going straight into the Marines, mm-hmm. was there a difference when you, this is something I've always wondered about, when you were there, were you either treated differently or assigned different tasks as opposed to the um, people who had gone straight into the Marine Corps directly? Uh, compared to the active duty folks. Yes. Um, you know, in 2004, I think my unit was given a slightly different mission probably because of that. Um, the, the time period from us getting activated to us actually getting into, into Iraq was pretty short. 
Um, we didn't have nearly as much training, and, and nobody quite knew what to expect. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. In 2006, um, we were just given an area of operations like every other battalion, infantry battalion. It was no different. Um, we did pretty extensive training. I mean, I think we did uh, f- a full five or six month workup. Um, we had it was it was a we were uh, ready to go, and it was a much different process than 2004. Now, in the reserves, many people who are in the reserves have other jobs. Now, you were going to school right. off and on, right. so it may not have affected you as much. But, I mean, is there approach? I mean, like like from the group that you were with that was sent over there, mm-hmm. did you did they approach it differently? Because, again, they're not um, active duty full-time. This is their job. There's somebody who may be a lawyer or a teacher or truck driver or whatever, and they're in the reserves, and now they're in Iraq. You said, When you say approach differently, what do you mean? I mean, as far as their mindset, because— yeah. You're basically leaving your job to do this, right? I was the guys I were with were all pretty young. Um, I think that has some, a, a lot to do with it. They were mostly, you know, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, um, and so it wasn't folks that had been in for for twenty years and had an, uh, another career. Okay. Um, and especially that second tour, we had we had spent a lot of time on active duty before getting ready, and so everybody was really in the mindset of. I mean, it was I think it was very similar. I don't think there was much difference. The second tour. Yeah. So we had uh, Representative Paul Kurtman on, I think about a year and a half, two years ago. And while he was not in Iraq, he was in the Marine Corps right. around the same time that you were at. He and I actually briefly spent some time in the same platoon yeah. here in St. Louis. Yeah. So, you know, we kind of asked him what he thought the experience of being in the military during this this war on terror, Iraq war era was. And he provided this insight on how it kind of affected him going forward. Kind of maybe the ethic that the military kind of gives you as far as your thoughtfulness when you approach issues or decision making. I think we probably share that kind of as a, as a smaller culture community. Um, I still think that our political philosophies can vary uh, to a large degree, you know, we, we have different things that motivate us and drive us, and we're there for maybe different reasons also. But I think that there, we do have that common bond. So I think what he was basically talking about was he was elected to the legislature in 2010, I think mm-hmm. like a year or two after he ended his, his military service. You were elected in 2008, Correct. I think while you were still in the reserves. I'm just curious to build on that. Do you enter the legislature with a different mentality because you kind of went through this experience compared to some people that, you know, may have been in the military in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, or may have never been in the military at all? Uh, I, it's it's tough because it's the only experience that I have, so it's tough to compare um, to folks who, who haven't had that experience to join the legislature. I, I started running for office less than a year after my last firefight in Fallujah, so that's uh, it was a very quick transi- transition for me. The thing that I have found uh, to be sometimes the most difficult is um, remembering the courage that I saw people show, you know, so 19, 20-year-olds show um, when it really mattered. I mean, really risking a lot. I mean, ultimately their lives in some cases. Um, and I saw them show that courage. And then I, I come to Jeff City and I watch politicians and I talk to them and I know they feel a certain way. I know they tell me that and they say, I just can't, I can't vote that way. Mm-hmm. What do you mean you can't? You know, I, I'm stunned by the lack of political courage that a lot of people demonstrate. And just having those two positions so closely juxtaposed really is hard for me to deal with. Has it influenced – as a backdrop here, I, I want to say uh, Representative Kurtman is a conservative Republican from St. Louis County. 
Right. So he obviously has reached a totally different mindset on what issues are important to him. And he, and he mentioned that in the interview correct. as well. Yeah. Cor- correct. Yeah. But my point being is that many people from the military who end up in public service are either very strongly one side or the other. Yeah. There's often very little middle ground among um, many of the military people I've under I've met who ended up in public service. So my question is, are there when you decided to run, what prompted you to run A then and B, were there key issues from the get-go that you wanted to push in the legislature? Yeah, I think that um, well, I had always grown up as a kid spending time in Jeff City. I mean, I used to, it's, I'm a strange um, story in that sense that uh, when I was 15, 16 years old, I used to come down and watch the state Senate. Um, Senator Steve Stoll from Jefferson County, I used to, to hang out in his office and all the Boone County delegation, all those folks were very kind to me. Uh, so it's something that, it's not like all of a sudden a light bulb went off and I just got interested in something I wasn't interested in. Um, the thing that I think really did clinch it for me though was uh, the fact that the war in Iraq was a war of choice. That is a, something, it, did, it wasn't like a, an earthquake or it wasn't like a thunderstorm. It's something that we consciously as a country decided to do. And we decided to do it through our elected leaders. If our elected leaders had gone a different path, that entire thing wouldn't have happened. And uh, I think it's very clear to me that the decisions that elected leaders make have very real-world consequences in people's lives. These are not abstract ideas. My life is fundamentally different um, because of the way a recount in Florida went, right? And that, that changed my life, and it changed the life of millions of other people. And so I know a lot of times people are frustrated and think everything's the same in politics. No, it, it is different. And seeing how clearly that was made me want to be involved and in, in make positive choices. Now, you, you represent a, a heavily Democratic district, which for, for many people who appear on our show with, who are from heavily Democratic or heavily Republican districts, the toughest race is usually their first primary. Right. And in your instance, um, it was a situation where Representative Jeff Harris was vacating the seat to run unsuccessfully for attorney general. And in the run-up for that... There were a number of candidates thrown about. Former uh, county commissioner Don Stamper was once a candidate. Uh, the sheet metal workers, President Russ Duker, I Russ, think. Russ Unger. Russ Unger. Yeah, a good friend of mine. Um, yeah, yeah. He yeah. almost was a candidate, yeah. but they both dropped out. There was a candidate named Candy Iveson, who was a longtime children's lobbyist, who was seen as the front runner for a while. Right. And I'll never forget it because this was such an embarrassing first question to ask you. But when I got your press release that said you were running and I saw that you were 24 years old, my first question to you apparently, and not apparently, I know it was, yeah. was are you really serious about this? Yes, I remember this. Yeah, And I think that the reason I asked you that question was based off experience in the fact that there had been youngish candidates who have run in Columbia before. Right. But at the time, the Boone County delegation was basically a bunch of 40- and 50-year-old professional people. And younger candidates before were seen as kind of novelty candidates. Now, obviously, what unfolded showed that you were definitely a serious candidate. And not a novelty. Not a novelty. You won pretty handily. You raised like seventy dollars or $80,000. Mm-hmm. How did you kind of, you know, defy the stereotypes of, of ignorant Columbia Tribune reporters and win that race? <laughs> no, it's funny because I, I remember when we sent that press release out, I was so nervous. I mean, I remember laying down on the floor just kind of feeling sick and being nervous. And the first call I get is from Jason Rosemont of the Tribune. And the first question is, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I just felt sick to my stomach. Um, I'm sorry about no, that. No. Obviously, I asked, you survived. I did. <laughs> uh, 
No, I, I, with the help of a lot of great people. Um, uh, my, my brother was my campaign manager. Uh, he, he ran the race, um, and it got a lot of help from Abe Rakov, who now is uh, running a U.S. Senate race um, for, for Jason Kander. Yeah. Um, the two of them really d- did wonders, and I, and I wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Also, an entire community. Like, I, I had I'd, I'd grown up in Columbia. I, you know, I was in Boy Scouts. I was an Eagle Scout. I worked. I played soccer all the way through. I was involved in a lot of different activities, so I knew a ton of people in town. And that was really a moment where I kind of stepped out there and, and you know, there's, when you're a candidate, you're, you're putting yourself out there. You're not sure what's going to happen. And really the community was there to help me. And people that I had known my entire life, you know, teachers, my kindergarten teacher, um, you know, school principals, neighbors, coaches, everybody kind of rallied around me and helped me. And that's how I got through that. So we're going to transition into issues a little bit because mm-hmm. we, we just um, basically went through a, a highly eventful last week of session. By the, yes. time this, by the time this airs, it'll be in about a month or so since. But, you know, for people who haven't been paying attention or haven't listened to our other podcasts. <laughs> or who have been asleep or in a coma. A, or, or been asleep <laughs> or who don't pay attention to this sort of stuff. You know, the House Speaker resigned due to a, a sexually charged text scandal. We had a filibuster over. An intern. It, we had a filibuster over right to work, which caused the, the Senate, Senate to, to paralyze. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk specifically about the House because that's where the chamber you're in right now. Right. And um, you had been kind of pushing this bill aimed at uh, establishing pay equity between the genders. Right. And while this is not directly related to intern sort of things, I think it still is within this wider issue of women in the workplace and kind right. of how they're treated. So right. before we get into the deal fiasco. I want you to kind of explain your mentality over that particular. Yeah, and I'm excited to take some, a moment to talk about this because it's, it's hard to sum up in a soundbite. So here's the basic thing. First, uh, equal pay is mandated under law. That, that is the law that, that, that men and women have to be paid the same. And uh, if you have direct... Allegedly. Em- well, no, no, we'll get there. But okay. that is the law. <laughs> that, that is the law that they have to be. And if you, if you can have direct evidence that that's not happening, then you can have a lawsuit and, and you can... So uh, the issue is not that we need to pass a law that says that they have to be paid the same. We have that law. We also have, I think, um, pretty much incontroversial proof that women still get paid less for the same job. And for, for folks out there who, who are listening who say, well, they choose – women choose to go into lower-paying fields, no, no. Like you, there are many, many studies that show women and men in the exact same job, in the exact same profession, make – Women make less money. All else being held constant, education levels, work experience, women make less. And so, and in most studies, and the numbers change, but most most studies have women making somewhere in the 70s. Percent-wise. Yes, percent per hour um, for men. And so I think if you look at these two things and you say, we've got a law that says, legally speaking, they have to be paid the same, but we have dozens of studies that show they're not, we've got this pay gap. And the question is, what do we do to address this pay gap? Because it's unfair to women, it's bad for families, um, it's bad for, for consumers and for the economy. It's a problem and it needs to be fixed. And so I, what I want is A, people to, to acknowledge that this exists and that it's caused by a multitude of different things. And what we have to try to do is find ways to unpack those reasons and address that so we can try to shrink that gap until it no longer exists. So what's the state's role in this? I mean, why did you propose state legislation, and what's your, what is your aim with that? Right. So w- what I proposed was that the Department of Labor and Industrial Relations, uh, we, would, we, we would mandate that they provide uh, best practices that would be available to businesses to address this problem. And... It's, this is 
predicated on the idea that, that people do want to get rid of the pay gap. There are, uh, there's a lot of research on this, and it, it shows that there are certain policies that can be pursued that reduce it. For example, transparency, one of the biggest. Uh, when people are transparent about salaries, when businesses are transparent about salaries, the pay gap closes. And, and I'll give you a story. Um, a good friend of mine, somebody I grew up with, works at the University of Missouri. Got a ma- she's got a master's degree. Um, and the department she was in hired somebody else uh, who didn't have a master's degree, had less education, and he was making more. And she saw that, and she thought that was unfair, and she went to her boss, and she had the numbers, and she showed him, and he's like, yeah, that's unfair, and she got a pay raise. There are a lot of different parts of that story. One is that she said something about it, and that's not always possible for people to do, but she did. But and she, she never, didn't get fired. And she didn't get fired, right. And so it's not that you can't always do that. But also that never would have happened had she not known that she was being paid less. Because what happens is women start out less or they make less, and then everybody gets a 2% pay raise that year. Well, 2% of a lower number is less, and the gap grows and grows and grows. And over 20 years, if you're getting 2% pay raises, but you started out at a lower base and you didn't know that, suddenly you've got a huge pay gap. Um, and so transparency, uh, studies show that accountability, if one person in, in the human resources department uh, internally is in charge of keeping track of, of like when bonuses go out, how they're divided. But the key is that it has to be one person. It can't just be our policy is this. It's got to be somebody who's actually checking those numbers. These are things that can be done to reduce that gap. And so I think if we have the goal of reducing that gap, um, then we, in a serious way, need to say, okay, we've got a law that says they have to be paid the same. What can we do to either make that law more effective or what other policies can we pursue that will reduce that gap? And that's what I was trying now, to Now, my understanding is it passed through two committees but didn't make it to the finish line. Correct. Um, it passed through the, the uh, Workforce Development Committee and then the the – there's another oversight committee, a select committee, and it passed through that as well. What sort of uh, treatment were you getting from um, Republican legislative leaders who control the chamber, like uh, former Speaker Deal, who's Republican from St. Louis County, and, and, and close to business, people mm-hmm. like that? I mean, what sort of attitude were they taking towards this? Deeply suspicious, I would say. Um, very suspicious that there was some sort of secret plan, um, and there, there okay. really wasn't. It was just a pretty straightforward, okay. this is this is the problem. We have to try to figure a way uh, to address it. Um, and yeah, they, they certainly they slowed it down. I tried to put an offer on the... Uh, I actually had a Republican that was going to offer it on the floor, and John Deal specifically told her she was not allowed to offer that. Yeah. Um, why? Um, I, I don't know why. We could, I, we could I, ascribe motives all we I, want. but yeah. I would have offered it. I would have gotten shut down. Well, but, I was just right. kind of curious. I'm just yeah. trying to get at the dynamics. Yeah. But I wanted to use this as a jumping off point to kind of the culture in the, in the Missouri House and the right. Missouri legislature because, you know, I guess that there's not necessarily a pay gap between female and male legislators because everybody basically makes the same unless you're the speaker. But it does seem to me, and this was a question I was asking a lot of people, including yourself, mm-hmm. that there is this kind of you know, underlying culture that may may even delve into the realm of sexism. I'm going to play a clip now of, of U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill, who was in the legislature in, in the, the 1980s. 1980s. And while I think that attitudes have changed and there are more female legislators now, this was her experience back then. Some of my classmates uh, in the legislature that were lawyers, where they kind of formed a club to see if they could kind of screw with my legislation. And so there were times that it I had to have a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. You had to, I mean, you have to make a choice at some point. Are you a victim or are you a leader? But 
to say that there was some sexual harassment would be an understatement. There was a lot of sexual harassment. Really? This is this is in in the state capitol? Oh, yeah. Well, at the time, if you went and looked at the highest paid assistants in people's offices, almost every single one of them was having an affair with their boss. There's that. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't yeah. have said that. That's Long in the pause. book. That's in the book. <laughs> By the way, her, the actual book that she's talking about is coming out in August, and I actually right. pre-ordered it today, and I kept that long pause in on purpose, as you can <laughs> mention. I know this is a strange question to ask a male legislator, and when I asked this to a female legislator like Gina Mitten, and she says that even now, even if it's gotten better, there's still kind of a there's kind of an aura of sexual harassment and sexism there. But do you think it's changed much in the Capitol since McCaskill was there? Do you still think that there's problems, not only with legislator on legislator interactions, but just the interns and all that sort of thing. Right. I, I don't, I wasn't there in the 80s, so I don't know whatever it's going to change. But the fact that I, you proposed this legislation makes me think you were at least thinking about this. I will, I will say there's absolutely a problem. Absolutely a problem. Any yes. examples? I mean, not necessarily individual people, but just a sense of the culture. Uh, for, for example, I mean, a couple of years ago, I know there was a meeting of, with Democratic women with the speaker because uh, none of their bills had been referred. Um, and they did didn't feel like they were, and I think they were right, they weren't being called on um, on the floor. Uh, and so they, they had a, a meeting with the speaker, and, I mean, it was, yeah, there's, there's and also, I mean, uh, there's certainly pretty, I, I will say, well-substantiated rumors about people, you know, having affairs and, and stuff like that, that, that have, the entire seven years that I've been there, that's been going on. Um yeah, and I, I think it, I think I've talked to a lot of women who have said it's one of the one of the most difficult environments they've worked in, um, and it really it's a combination of a lot of things, uh, but one of which is just a, a a culture of sort of of arrogance and entitlement in the capital among uh, the legislators. I mean, we often talk about one of the most dangerous times. Uh, and the capital is when they bring in food in the back chamber and there's this feeding frenzy yeah. and there's people throwing around pizza boxes. And it, it, it's like, I mean, it would make eighth grade, an eighth grade pizza party look I, I've got civilized. I've this isn't really partisan. No, not it, at all. This is, this not is, at there all. have been, I mean, not when, at all. from reporting in the capital for a while, I've heard stories of, you know, misdeeds from both parties. So right. I want to be clear about that because after the deal story broke, you know, a lot of Republicans were like, you know, don't try to make this just a Republican thing. There could be instances of Democratic things. Too. I don't want. I don't want to make this a Republican th- or Democrat thing. It absolutely crosses party lines. That's what I'm trying to I say. I will say. I will say. It that is a power thing. There, it's a power thing. There's also a very real degree of frustration with the person that kills gender pay, mm-hmm. and kills uh, Mona, which is uh, so you can't discriminate based on sexual orientation. Um, and people that say that they have a moral problem with that, and then go do this. That's almost an extra layer of frustration but it is absolutely happening and the mona the mona that you mentioned is the missouri non-discrimination act which you've sponsored for a number of years yeah it's my sixth year um just briefly explain that and where where do you think it's going to be so in missouri uh people are are stunned to find this but you can be fired for being gay or the perception that you're gay um or you can be denied housing or public accommodations um you know and and most people think you can't and and you certainly there's nothing in state law to stop it um, and I think that's that's wrong. I think it is the state um, officially condoning uh, bullying, and I think it needs to be changed. And so I've been fighting very hard for the last um, six years. I've been sponsoring the bill. We had a hearing again this year. Um, and, you know, it, it's 
goes back to the, the political courage thing we were talking about earlier. I have had more Republicans come up to me and say, you know, I, I personally agree with you. I just can't. I can't vote for because it. Because it passed out of the Senate a few it years did. ago. Yeah. We were and one act- vote away. And actually, a lot of Republicans who I would not have expected to vote it for, voted for that. Like, you know, Rob Schaff voted for that. Wayne and Wallingford and, you know, Tom Dempsey voted for we it. Had, we had the votes for it. Ironically, it came back from the Senate uh, on the last day. And the only thing that needed to happen was John Deal needed to make the motion to go to the bill. And the sponsor was going to motion to pass it. We had all the votes and he, and he didn't do it. Yeah. What do you think that is, is causing the opposition to that? Is it just that some Republicans are uncomfortable with voting for something that's perceived as pro-LGBT? Even though you do have some Republicans, uh, such as Representative yeah, Engler, who have said, right. you or know, is, they're it, not necessarily, they're is it also just the fact that I mean, I mean yeah, yeah. There, there, are, there are there are a handful of Republicans that have, have joined. I want to make that clear. Yeah, I there want are to make a handful that of Republicans. Or Absolutely. is it just the fact? But that, not I mean, many. I mean, the impact of this basically is if you are discriminated against because of your sexual orientation, you could sue basically for redress, essentially. Right. And exactly. right now, you can't do that. Right. Is it a fear that it's about you know litigation and causing a litigious environment or something? I would like say that? There, there are two things. One is one is that, and the second is the the quote, moral objections uh, to homosexuality. And there are a lot of people that use, there are some people that genuinely have the, the concern about um, additional litigation. Mm-hmm. And I understand that, and I tried my best to address that. There are other people that I think are just, want to be able to discriminate and are using that as a shield. Yeah, because we had Mike Colonna on, and he basically said the same thing. Yeah. So we only have a few minutes left. We do want to kind of talk about your, your political future. Mm-hmm. You're term limited out of the House. You're the dean of the Boone County Delegation <laughs> yes, at yes. age 32, which I just find yeah. unbelievable. And it's also the site of my impending. So you'll be out in 2016. Yeah. I'll correct? be termed out in 2016. But you yeah, have announced nice. you're running for the state Senate and for the seat that is held by Republican Senator Kurt Schaefer. He is termed out as well. Correct. Um, it's a seat that includes Boone and Cooper County. So I think it's an it aggregate a Democratic seat, although it's probably less Democratic than it was before the census because Cooper County, it seems a little bit more Republican than Randolph County. Um, uh, but so it's also smaller. So, also Bo- smaller. so Boone County makes it more of the district now than it used to. So yeah. how do you kind of see yourself in this race? Is, because it's going to be probably a very competitive contest. It's going to be targeted by both parties. How do you right. stack up in that contest? I'm excited about it. Uh, for one, it's an opportunity uh, to to get into areas that I haven't been, um, uh, politically speaking, working on like agricultural issues and things like that. Um, so uh, it's exciting as, as somebody who likes policy to try to delve into new areas. Um, the district is actually pretty democratic. Um, in 2008, 2012, the last two presidential elections, every single Democratic statewide candidate won the district. Barack Obama won in 2012 without campaigning in Missouri. Jason Kander, uh, you know, won by a, a squeaker statewide and won the district by 10 percent, uh, 10 points. So it, it's actually a pretty Democratic district. Um, it's not as Democratic as my House seat, uh, so it, it requires me to do additional work and meet new folks, which I'm excited about. Now, you don't necessarily have an announced Republican opponent yet, but there is kind of this push for Representative Caleb Jones, who also is of Columbia, formerly of Montauk County, to get into the race. And it's an odd situation because I know that both of you are friends yeah. with each other. Yeah, we I, are. I think it's a situation where you don't really see that often in Boone County politics. Usually it's like bitter enemies running against each other. And I think that a lot of Republicans want him to run because he's good at raising money. You know, he's seen as a strong candidate. But he was on our show a few months ago and he said he hadn't decided yet. Mm-hmm. 
Is it going to be a weird situation if you guys run against each other? Uh, it will be. I mean, he and I are, really are good friends. He's, he, he referenced the other day that we're sort of the last of the old breed of guys that, that disagree with each other um, on policy stuff and, and philosophically but are still friendly uh, personally. And, uh, it, you know, when, when, I, when he moved into Boone County a couple of years ago from Monta, I physically helped him do it, physically carried stuff into his house. Um, so we are, we are friends. And uh, I know it makes everybody in the Capitol, and even in, in Columbia, and, and they take double takes because they see the two of us talking. And everybody always assumes that we're talking about, like, working out some kind of deal in the Senate race. And we're either just working together on stuff or we're just talking because we enjoy each other's company yeah, and, and we care about each other's families and, and things like that. So yeah. it really shocks everybody. Yeah, you know? Not to get too much in the weeds here because yeah. I know we're, we're almost going to be kicked out of the studio in two minutes. But I really do feel the Boone County delegation has gotten more collegial and cohesive since you got into office, mainly because you, you couldn't actually run against Kurt Schaefer in 2012 because right. you were too young. I think that had a pretty big impact on the working relationship because – for better or for worse, when those delegations, there's always like internal rivalries because they want to run for against each other for Senate and whatnot. And because that didn't happen in this case, I think the working relationship might have been better. Now, one thing I wondered about, I mean, because you do have a law degree now. Mm -hmm. So are you practicing? I mean, I'm not I, now. I did for for a little while after law school. So um, are you? But I'm campaigning full time. So now. okay, so you're campaigning full time. Yeah. You're a full time legislator. Yeah, I mean, my. my I, I want to be in the state Senate. Uh, there's a lot of uh, I'm the kind of person that that wakes up in the middle of the night and is thinking about is frustrated we can't expand Medicaid um, or sees an opportunity uh, as our state that our state's not taking is is frustrated and angry about it. So I, I care deeply about this, and my goal is to be in the state Senate. I'm going to work every day I can. Well, the Medicaid expansion. I mean, the the really big pots of money pretty much are looks like Missouri is going to be refusing most of that, mm -hmm. even though there would be some federal money afterwards, not quite as big. Do you see any chance of things changing from the opposition now that now um, controls the agenda in General Assembly? Um, you know, I think, and one other oh. thing I'm excited about my race is I think people need, uh, people who are frustrated with the status quo need to change the status quo, and my race is an opportunity to do that. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the players are the same, and I think until you until there's a political price for people um, making some of these um, you know ill-advised decisions, they're going to keep doing it. And so uh, I want to be part of the of uh, making them pay that political price. Well, we'll be watching your race from afar, and uh, maybe we'll have you back on if you're a senator, or maybe we'll have you back on if you're just a regular lawyer because you were you're an excellent guest as I thought. Yeah, hey, it was worth it was worth the trip. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank sure. you for coming. for For all of our stories, you can go to stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And you can follow uh, Representative Weber's suddenly very active Twitter account <laughs> at s underscore Weber with uh, Weber with two B's. Just as a quick aside, he actually was had a Twitter account since 2009, <laughs> and actually it only tweeted six times up until maybe some point this year, and now he tweets basically all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm like seven or eight years behind everybody else when it comes to technology, and probably t 10 or 12 when, when you it comes tweeted, to fashion. it was yeah. actually news sometimes. But <laughs> right. until next week, thank you very much, and so long. So long. So long.